Hey, it's the new year. Welcome to the first Dishcast of 2024. I am always in a state of elation at this time of year because the holiday season is finally disappearing and I won't have to grapple with it for another 12 months. It's just been awful. And of course, the worst thing at Christmas is a new year when you're to be sick. So I was stuck in bed. And anyway, I woe is me. Woe is fucking me. But I'm fine. I, finally, my lungs are actually working a little bit again. And and I've been sitting there marinating in Netflix and stuff. I mean, I I just want to thank Netflix for slow horses. I mean, I don't know whether you guys have been watching this show, but it is so brilliant. It's uh, Gary Oldman at his most dyspeptic British self. Hilarious, too. On Netflix. But this week, I've also been, let's say, riveted by, obviously, what's been happening in the campus wars and in the grand battle we're having out there between liberalism and illiberalism, between free speech and coerced speech, between open campuses and closed campuses, in the case, obviously, of Claudine Gay and the others who were president of universities who were exposed essentially and having double standards about who can have which speech on campus according to the principles and logic of DEI rooted in uh, postmodern critical theory. And I am thrilled because we have today on the podcast someone who's been in the middle of, of all of that and who's actually coming back to the podcast, Carol Hooven. She was here to discuss her brilliant book, which if you haven't read, you should get. T, the story of testosterone, the hormone that dominates and divides us. It's just a fascinating and brilliant book, helping people understand what it is that makes half of humanity male, I mean specifically, and half of humanity, by the way, not male or female. She's also married to Alex Byrne, who's a philosopher, one of few philosophers in the country grappling with these questions of sex and gender from not the queer theory, critical theory point of view necessarily. Alex Byrne, he has a new book out, and it's called The Trouble with Gender, and I really recommend that one too. These are difficult, complicated matters. They're also riveting matters because they are not just about science and reality. It's also about how we conduct ourselves in a liberal society and whether the universities, which in my view should be the sacrosanct place of utter freedom of thought, which is sort of the lungs of a liberal democracy, the ability to breathe in and out, to air ideas, to test arguments, to have nothing forbidden, everything up for grabs and reinspection and introspection, all the rest of it. That's the battle. And Carol, whom I've gotten to know a little bit ever since she came on the podcast, uh, is now a senior fellow at the AEI, an associate at Harvard's Department of Psychology, which is Steven Pinker's lab. She was a full faculty member before, and we'll get into what happened to her and what happens to anyone at Harvard who actually is interested in the truth. She's an active member also of the newly established Council on Academic Freedom at Harvard and working on a new book. She's also one of the sweetest and most brilliant people I've ever met. And I, I, feel, I feel very fond of you, Carol. <laughs> Not only because I've always long Mutual. been fascinated by the, the question of testosterone, which has riveted me for decades now, and I wrote about it 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And, and the, the, what biology 
tells us about the human condition, I think is just a, an incredibly interesting field of discourse, but it is currently fraught because of all the other reasons every inquiry into unfettered analysis of various data is also being crippled. Anyway, Carol, thank you so much for coming back. I really appreciate it. And especially now when we're in the middle of this. How are you feeling right now? <laughs> well, first of all, I'm feeling lucky to be here. I'm feeling lucky to know you. You have been an inspiration to me. You were part of the inspiration for my book, your work and your straight talk about sex and what testosterone means and what it did to you. You know, I quoted you yes. a few times in the book because you, people like you, gave me a kind of permission to talk about the biology of sex the way that I wanted to, the way that was my intuition and the way that I wanted to explore and teach about sex and other issues having to do with our human biology in the way that I thought made sense, which is to explore the truth and have fun with it and have debates. And, you know, it's exciting, it's interesting, and it's important. So I love what you said in the introduction about what a university is supposed to be, because that's exactly what I took for granted. And I feel sad now. That's how I feel. I feel, I also feel I feel a lot of, a lot, I guess, that we were talking before we got started. I feel a lot of different things right now. It's a pretty intense time at Harvard. It's an intense time for me in terms of what, where my career is, where I am emotionally with having to leave or choosing to leave. You know, that's a bone of contention with people at Harvard in terms of how I talk about what has happened. So I have to be you know, as accurate as I can be. Let's, let's give people very briefly, because we talked about this before, but let's give them very briefly the bare bones of what happened to you. Basically, that you okay. have, been, have been teaching about the subject for many years at Harvard, even though that wasn't your, you didn't start out wanting to be an academic. You come from a very different, interesting pathway. Then you got it, then you became a teacher of this and was immensely popular. And because the subject itself is fascinating. And then you put out your book and you gave one interview uh, to promote it on Fox News, where you were actually clear about what the book says. And then what happened? Okay. So I want to start, I just want to clarify what my position was at Harvard. Okay. So do. I did, I got my PhD at Harvard in 2004. And I stayed on at Harvard as a lecturer, a permanent lecturer, which is an unusual position at Harvard. So I wasn't a full faculty member, but I was a, a teaching faculty, essentially. And I also had an administrative position, which was ultimately the co-director of undergraduate studies in my department, which was human evolutionary biology. And having that position is what allowed me to stay on in a position that is not what they call ladder faculty. That means being a tenure track faculty member an associate professor or a full professor, something like that. They call like it that. ladder, like you're climbing a ladder. Climbing a ladder, something like that. Yes. And I wasn't into that. I never wanted to do that. I really, I discovered when I was a graduate student, I loved research and I still love research and playing with numbers and exploring topics that I'm fascinated by. But I also, I wanted to stay at Harvard and I, I really loved teaching the undergraduates. And I found that interesting and challenging and enormously rewarding. How did the undergraduates grapple with the material in your course? Like what was, what was it like teaching this yeah. to, to, to sort of basic 
basic undergrad is interested in what testosterone is interested in sex. What was, what, how did they respond to this subject matter? Okay. My bread and butter course was called hormones and behavior. And it was almost every year, the biggest class in the department. There are, you know, gen ed classes taught by faculty in our department that might've been bigger, but mine was a class that was taught in the department. It was very popular. And the undergrads were great. So I should just say in that class, I had a lot of pre-meds, students who wanted to go on to be doctors, who had to, wanted to learn about the endocrine system. And I taught the crap out of the endocrine system and a lot <laughs> of detail and my students know it. And so it wasn't just about sex and gender. It was about all aspects of how, of sort of our relationship with hormones and how all kinds of different hormones shape who we are and how we can understand that all from an evolutionary perspective in terms of reproduction and survival, et cetera. And so when it came to these more controversial parts of the course, which are about, say, differences of sexual development, so people who have XX sex chromosomes who are female, but might have been exposed to high testosterone, for instance, who have very masculine characteristics, talking about those kinds of issues or the causes of homosexuality or are, does testosterone have anything to do with homosexuality or are men really, do men really have higher libidos than women? And if so, why? You know, those kind of things are controversial. The students loved it. They were fantastic. The undergrads, you know, sometimes would push back, but it was always with a, a few rare exceptions that started around 2015 were generally really involved, really curious. Some of them, we had more students majoring in what used to be women, gender, and sexuality. And I think it's now just gender and sex. I don't know what it's called now, but I don't, I'm not sure the woman piece is still in the title of that concentration. We had more and more students who were majoring in those kinds of fields who, be, who brought, I think, a healthy criticism to what I was teaching them. But overall, the undergrads were wonderful and very engaged and you, curious. You, and it, you want undergrads yeah, to push back. You want the dialogue. You want them to try and argue against you. That's oh, all. of course. No, I mean, of course. I, I did. The, I was a TA. I, I know I've been through the yeah. system. And I also want to just reiterate, actually, where you come from, where I'm coming from, it comes off at times, and I know this can appear, in which I'm really furious at Harvard and angry about it. But I'll tell you where that comes from. It comes because I love it and believe in it as an institution. The way I believe in Oxford and Cambridge as a kid, the way I feel that the West's essential, as I said, their, its lung capacity is in these little oases of freedom of thought in which you leave behind politics and you, you are genuinely entering into dialogue with anybody around truth, around science, around literature, around history, or any other, and you're trying to figure out the truth about the world, which is what Harvard's motto is, Veritas, and to watch that being thrown away is not just distressing for those of us who are alums of these places. I'm an alum of Oxford and Harvard, as my ex-husband used to constantly remind me when I would stub my <laughs> toe on the floor, <laughs> or I couldn't actually figure out how to put the toaster in. He'd always say, huh, Oxford and Harvard, huh? Because I was such a useless <laughs> idiot. But there is a love of these places and a love of discourse that is fueling you and me, Carol. I mean, I, there was nothing more exciting to me than to be in a really interesting but tense debate at Harvard on a typical topic. I mean, one of the, my proudest moments 
Well, I used to teach Michael Sandel's course on justice. It was one of the yes. is it another huge. And how many course. students were in that course? Oh, like God, hundreds. I think over a thousand at one point. Okay. But anyway, yes. And I remember Michael actually after I graduated, asked me to come back to his class to debate my old professor Harvey Mansfield on on yes. homosexuality, and. Yes. You walked in that room with me and my professor going to go at it on marriage. And it was just, I mean, it was just a very enlivening and invigorating experience. And not only that, but we were able to disagree. And in fact, some people in the crowd were kind of mean to Harvey Mansfield. But I love the guy. We disagreed. We had a great time. Everyone was talking about it afterwards. This is what the university is about. Get yes. them, get them yes. to debate. And to be yes. and Michael Sandel was, was brilliant at this. Just this wonderful sense that we can say anything and ask any question of any statement and figure it all out. Yeah. And we may, and we will not reach the conclusion. We will. This is a never concluding, never ending mode of inquiry. It's a conversation, and we don't want to end it. We want to keep asking the questions that keep the conversation going so we better understand the world. I know this sounds a bit... I just want to jump in about Harvey. He lives down the street and I've been to... So I've gotten to know him a bit. I've been to a few, a couple dinners and parties at his house. He's married to this wonderful woman who is 30 something years younger than he is. And he's still doing great, of course. He's, you know, in his 90s, I think. He was one of the first people who reached out to me when all this trouble for me started happening at Harvard. And I hadn't known a lot of Republicans before all of this happened. And I've gotten to know many more Republicans, many conservative Republicans, religious Republicans, people who are against gay marriage, against abortion. And I've really, I haven't changed my views about those issues, but I've changed my views about, or my ability to hear people who disagree with me. And I have so much respect. Harvey's one of the nicest guys I have met. And when I went to his house, he had all kinds of students over there, young students, gay students who were having problems, I think, with their families that he had kind of adopted. He had every sort of identity. He's a wonderful human being, but I disagree with him about a lot of things and he's interesting and he can go at it hard. And so I just agree with you completely. And that's what should be happening on campus, but he is a huge outlier. There aren't a lot of people like him left. So we are in a monoculture and it makes me sad. Not only are we in a monoculture, we're in an environment where everyone, and this is, I have so many examples of this, where students and faculty are petrified I mean, you can just see it in action, are petrified, not only of saying the wrong thing, but of pushing back too hard in the way you just described. This lively kind of debate that we used to have at the talks I went to in the first probably 10 years I was at Harvard were so invigorating and sometimes would get pretty aggressive. And that was the best. That was fun. It was interesting. But you had to be someone who could keep up with it and stick, stay in it and not you know, wither under that kind of pressure. But that's when we get the best, I thought, that's when we learn the most, when we really challenge other people's views hard. And it was So fun. let's go to the, <laughs> to the moment you, you put the book out. It gets uh, some really great reviews. It's, it's, it, it did well, right? It did pretty well. 
Yeah, um, no, it's it's doing fine, and yeah, it got unanimously strong reviews in the popular press and in the academic journals. And I so was this this really book came out, and you, would, you did your publicity tour, and on that publicity tour, you had one opportunity to go on Fox News, which of course has a huge audience and would be a great possible audience for people to buy and read your book. So you went on that, and that was that was a step too far. Tell me what happened. So that was, I think, the first time I was ever on live TV. And it wasn't specifically to promote the book. It was because Katie Herzog had written a piece for what at the time was Barry Weiss's Substack. And her article was an investigation of what was going on in medical schools, because there's this situation in which, and this I've talked to a lot of people at this point, medical school professors, this is actually happening medical school professors are backing away from using the terms male and female and pregnant woman, pregnant women and others. And she described one situation in which a professor has, was recorded apologizing profusely and saying for saying male and female and pregnant women and saying that he never intended to offend anybody. And this was the worst thing that he could do. So I, was quoted in this article as saying, this is not the way, something like, you know, this is not the way to go. These are our future medical profession professionals. We need to stick to the facts. We need to keep ideology out of it. So Fox News wanted to have me on to comment on that article. This is something I feel very, very strongly about is the value of clear language and scientific concepts. And that the wor- one of the worst things we can do as a democracy, essentially, and as scientists, is to twist the facts to push a certain political ideology. This is, I I do think it's dividing the populace, which is exactly what I said on Fox News. And I also said, look, there's two sexes. There are male and female. These are just the facts of nature. These facts exist. And we don't need to try to change those facts to suit some political narrative. We can be compassionate. We can fight for people's rights. We can use people's preferred pronouns. Having the facts of nature doesn't prevent any of this. We, the citizens of this democracy, decide what to do with the facts. We are supposed to decide the implications of those facts. And that is what I tried to say on the show. And then, okay, so this is something I want to I want to be careful in how I explain what happened because there are people at Harvard right now who are not happy with how I'm talking about this and I can tell you about exactly why because I think it's interesting and it's disturbing to me. We'll take your time. So and and take, okay. take us through it. So in the department that I was the, where I was the co-director of undergraduate studies that I'd been for teaching in essentially for uh, 20 years. And I should say this is, in some senses, it's a ser- it was a service position. I didn't really have any ambitions beyond eventually writing a book. I just wanted to do my job and do it well. And the faculty in my department have, like the faculty at many most universities have their research labs. They have graduate students, they have grants, they're, you know, publishing a lot of papers. I was teaching more and doing this administrative work and didn't have a lab and wasn't doing that kind of research. So I was in a very different kind of position. It was really low, relatively low on the status hierarchy. In addition, I'm a woman. And I think all of these things played into what happened. 
So in the department, again, as in many other departments at many universities, not just Harvard, there are, first of all, there's the, everybody knows what DEI is, I think at this point, diversity, equity, and inclusion. There is a large DEI infrastructure in the university and it's getting larger by the day, Some it feels like. It's extremely influential and we are bombarded with messages from the DEI administration about what our values are, making people feel included, making them feel comfortable, what trainings, you know, DEI trainings, et cetera. There are no emails, generally, there were no emails about the kind of things that you and I were just talking about, about norms of dialogue and how to argue productively without assaulting someone's character and that we should have a diversity of viewpoint that, that just wasn't part of our daily agenda, right? It, It wasn't on people's minds. So you have the broader DEI network, and then you have internal departmental DEI groups of various kinds that are headed up by graduate students often put together by graduate students. So but with lots of buy-in from faculty and involved faculty involvement, faculty support, departmental support. And that means financially, logistically, the our DEI task force would run departmental meetings sometimes and had subcommittees about how to decolonize professors' syllabi or hire who we should be hiring or what kinds of students we could be admitting. And they would track whether we were following their recommendations. And faculty sat on these subcommittees and hosted these events. And it was very influential. And I know for a fact that faculty were nervous about pissing off the people on the DEI task force, in particular, the director of the task force. I don't want to say her name, and it, you know you can find it, but I I don't. This isn't about her specifically. I don't have any animosity towards her. She was. This happened because DEI is so powerful so in the a, university. There's a I'll college. Tell you what, and then I there's a university. There's a university structure of DEI, and then each each department also has its kind of embedded DEI committee to monitor to the smallest detail, whether everyone at Harvard is feeling yes. included, belonging. Or in the, depar- in the department generally, yeah. Right, right. And so this isn't something that the university appoints. They're not hired by the university. However, they are extremely influential in the departments where they exist. And they were very influential in our department. And a lot of the norms of discourse changed because of DEI influence. And a lot of things changed because of DEI influence. And the person, I'm just going to call her Lisa. I think that the Lisa knew that she could get away with what she did get away with, which was going on to Twitter. She's the direct, Lisa was the director of our task force, a graduate student who went on to Twitter after my Fox News appearance. And of course, I don't have the actual tweet, but 
something, it's still up on Twitter or something. As the, this is very important, she represented herself as speaking on behalf of Harvard and the DEI task force. She said, as the director of HEB's DEI task force, I am appalled and frustrated by my transphobic and harmful remarks. And she went on to say that this was dangerous to students and that we should create a safe space for all gender identities, et cetera. So uh, some, I, I think at the time I had 2,000 followers or 1,500 followers on Twitter, and I didn't know what to do. I saw that and I kind of panicked and I thought, oh my God, this is going to be out in the world as you know, my own department calling me transphobic. And I retweeted her tweet with a quote, I quote tweeted it and asked a question. I said, thank you. You know, something like, thank you for your comments. Or I forget what I said, but can you let me know what I said that was transphobic or harmful? I think, you know, I care deeply about all of our students. And I want to say everybody I worked with who knew anyone who knew me at Harvard and knew my relationship with students, which I, I have won many teaching awards. I was known for being someone who really cared about all the students, especially students who were different in terms of their gender identity or expression or something like that. So this was very painful. And these were graduate students who didn't really know me. So uh, what happened, it just, it went viral. A lot of people with gazillions of Twitter followers, journalists, Glenn Greenwald, Gad sad, all these people retweeted it and and supported most of them supported me. But uh, it got covered in newspapers all over the world. And I agitated at that time. It was the end of the summer and people were on vacation. And I just remember I needed I wanted something done. I wanted someone in the department to defend me or like, you have to understand this was 2021 and I didn't know everything I know now. I feel so, I was so naive and I did think that there might be some, you know, if I go on Fox news and say there are two sexes, I thought maybe someone would have an issue with that, (laughs) but I just thought, well, but I'm not transphobic. So it doesn't matter if they say that because everyone knows that I'm not. And of course the faculty in my department or the administrators who have written letters saying that I'm this great teacher and advisor, even higher. uh, I have all this in, sorry, all this uh, documented, which I needed for my attorney. (laughs) So, um, so did anyone in the department come, no, just anybody in the department come and defend you in that sense? And and so I had expected that they would, I did, I didn't want them to weigh in on the issue. I just thought, oh my God, uh, of course, after my 20 years of, I worked really hard. Like I just gave everything to that place. I mm-hmm. gave everything to the department. I gave everything to my students. And it, there's just no question that that's true. So I thought, of course, they're going to say she's not, this person does not speak on the behalf of our department or of Harvard. And of course, this is a valued faculty member who has every right to these views, something like that. Uh, but I didn't know, you know, I didn't didn't know right. what should be done. And so what happened is, and I think that what happened, it's messy and complicated. And I think this is how it works. Nobody knew what to do because 
they didn't want to, oh, I forgot. Sorry. I should say the part where the graduate student union took out a statement and published it, linked to it in the Harvard Crimson. And the statement accused me of bringing racist abuse and death threats upon Lisa and that I was the bad actor and that my actions had caused her to suffer all of this racist abuse. And I believe, I don't have firm evidence that that is why I couldn't get any graduate students to agree to be my teaching fellows as usual, as it happened every single year I taught that course. Now I couldn't teach it because zero graduate students would agree to be my teaching fellows. I can't, I don't have, I I didn't do the study. I want to stop you right there because that's shocking to me. That, that you're a grad student, you, you, part, you own part of your living from that to being a teaching fellow. They taught, they taught for you before, so they Every knew the year, content yeah. of the class. They knew you, presumably, but not a single one was prepared to actually be your teaching assistant because of, of, of a, 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 a student, because presumably Lisa, whatever we want to call her, was, an, was a grad student, not a faculty member that by leveraging social media in this way, you could actually completely destroy someone's ability to teach at Harvard. Yes. I don't know if the social, if it was the social media or it was this graduate student union statement. So if, because if, the, if the graduate, it was students, quite harsh, it was quite harsh. Yeah. If the graduate students, boycott your class. You can't really teach it. Is that, is, I mean, you can't. I did not. I could not teach it for the first time ever. Wow. And so, when a professor is prevented from giving a course, which she's given many times before, very popular, because grad students are refusing to teach it, wouldn't the president of the university or somebody ahead of the department take a stand on that and defend your uh, the other students' ability to actually go to your course? They're paying... Harvard, money to okay. go have these courses. This is a very popular course. Yeah. So wh- did anyone come to your defense to keep that lecture series going, keep that class going? So this is this is complicated because the way that the teaching fellow assignments works is complicated. And with if you're a professor who has a lab and you have grad students, it's easy to get teaching fellows. I always had to, I always had a little more trouble finding them because I didn't have a lab, but it was never a problem before. But I think that part of the problem is that no faculty wanted to be perceived as being in not just indifferent, but uncaring about the needs of this young woman who said she was suffering racist abuse and that she was the victim, essentially, that she had been harmed. And I was the person, I was the reason she was being harmed. Even though you and, were not, you were not the, uh, you weren't the person abusing her anyway. You, you, you well, just... that was the story, though. That was the narrative. And I think that the, and the classic because narrative of the influence, yeah. The classic Sorry. narrative is you are a transphobe. And you're like, no, I'm not. And the other person says, well, since you've defended yourself, I've had a whole bunch of people yell at me online, and therefore, because I'm a, because of my race or my sex or whatever, I am the one who is actually under siege here, not you. 
Well, I was punching down supposedly because this was a graduate student and I retweeted her tweet. That was my sin. And she, the point is you that people have to understand. Yes. But I, I sicked, I sicked my Twitter mob on her apparently. And I looked for any racist abuse. And I also saw evidence in an email of what her, what she had that constituted that abuse on Twitter. There was none. There was zero. There were jokes. There was teasing of her there, you know, and somebody might've called her stupid or something, but there were, there was no evidence provided of any racist. And I saw none and I looked for it, racist abuse on Twitter. That doesn't mean it wasn't elsewhere, but but the point was that that was the narrative. That's all you need is the appearance of something, of a narrative. And this is the point about DEI. It had a hold on even the faculty members, tenured, famous faculty members and administrators in my department and in my division who I met with, the dean of science who I met with, other DEI actual hired administrators at Harvard, none of them were willing to do anything. In fact, I was treated rudely by the Dean of Science when I asked, well, what, who was talking about all kinds of initiatives he, he thought we should get underway to discuss or to figure out how to weigh the benefits of academic freedom with the impact of people's words or something like that. And so I wanted to know, what are you going to do for me? And I was given a stern lecture on not interrupting by this person. And there was, I felt, okay, I have no one in the administration who cares about me, who's willing to go out on a limb, which it shouldn't be considered going out on a limb, but it was. Somebody had to have big balls. Somebody had to risk their reputation. So the thing is, I'm saying these are big, powerful people with tenure who are well-known, have you know international reputations. That is the exact point. They have a, a huge <laughs> distance to fall. You know, They have a lot. They want to get elected to this or that society and they want to keep their pristine reputations. If there's an accusation of racism or not caring about a minority woman who's been attacked, there was another incident that I haven't even talked about where a trans woman graduate student in another department attacked me as transphobic and the chair of that department sent the complaint to the whole another biology department. That's a whole other thing. But there you have a trans woman who says that she's been victimized by my words, my transphobic words. So are you going to be the one who's going to say, look, I defend Carol Hooven's rights to assault you? <laughs> Essentially, that was not something that was encouraged, obviously. So the power of DEI, even if it is a graduate student who's the director of this thing, I believe that she fully understood her power and she knew that she could essentially get rid of me if she made a big stink and people supported her. And they did support her. Of course they supported her. They don't want to be the ones who aren't going to go along with her. 
So it is complicated, but what it points to, and after a lot of reflection, it is purely the influence of DEI and fear of people who could have helped me, who didn't, fear of reputational damage. That is how I'm trying to make sense of it. I don't have all the answers there, but what is happening now? Let me put it this way. What you did on Fox News or in your book or whatever was not was was an exploration of what you believe to be the facts of human biology. It had nothing to do with trans transgender people necessarily. It was that all is about correct. That is correct. It's evolution. It's an evolutionary reproductive strategy. It's it's a, it's a very complicated and interesting subject, but obviously it's not about transgender people. Now the point here is that you are debating a point. You are you and you're interested in a university at being disproven or being shown that you're wrong about this or that or the other. But that is not what happens. What happens is that you're not challenged because you got something wrong. You're challenged because what you got right hurt someone's feelings or just stating certain empirical facts or arguments is hurt someone's feelings and therefore is weaponized hate. And that is the worst thing you could possibly do. And so once you have that core structure, which is that the feelings of students and the possibility of there being some kind of generalized bigotry towards them on the basis of an involuntary characteristic outweighs the ability for you to have a completely open discussion and chills the statement of fact or argument because once the sensibilities are the only thing that really matter, they trump everything else. And as soon as they trump everything else, basic rational discourse is kind of over. It's all about how do you make people feel? So that's why they don't give grades, right? They don't give C grades anymore because it might make someone feel bad. It doesn't matter the objective quality of stuff. It's a a university that's basically reorganized itself, not around truth, but around quote-unquote social justice, which requires the suppression of certain truths to avoid harming quote-unquote certain minorities. That is the end of the university. See, that, that's what I—that's that's sort of what I want to say. It's the end of it. It's a, it's a it's an absolute mortal blow to liberal democracy. Um, and they are explicit about it. Critical theorists do not believe in liberal democracy. They believe it's a simp- simply a mask for for suppression and oppression of non-whites and various other minorities. And this is how they're going to get rid of it. And what's completely staggering to me is that the universities have said, yes, please, we, we want to get rid of this. We want to just be a vehicle for achieving a certain idea of social justice. And the truth comes second. And that's, to, 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 in one way, I wrote this the other, the other week, that, that Harvard's returning to its roots as a divinity school, that what it was <laughs> begun as was a way to inculcate elites that were theologically correct. I mean, Unitarian Universalist was president of this for over 100 years. It didn't care that much about academic standards. It cared about creating a new elite that would represent a certain kind of Christian doctrine that would then run the country. And it's returning to that, except it's a very different kind of religion. And, it's, and the religion is, is indo- absolutely hostile to the spread of what it calls dangerous ideas. Anyway, that's my, that's, my yeah. read. 
<laughs> but it does seem this is when I like years ago when I was saying this matters, it matters, it matters. The reason it matters is not because a few nutty professors are doing nutty things, which I fully support. <laughs> nutty professors should be allowed to do nutty things. It matters because once you have decided intellectually that the objective truth is not as important as making everyone feel a certain way and rigging the feeling so that certain groups have a greater claim on it than other groups, all to reflect a racial sexual hierarchy that is inverted from what they understand to be the current hierarchy. And that's the goal of everything. And of course, if you have that as your goal, the quality or validity of the stuff that you're producing is less important than the fact that you're addressing. And this is why Claudine Gay is such a fascinating example, because there is no question, and I can say this, you don't have to, but I will say this. I've read those papers. Hi there. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>